Hello and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, the more I learn about today's guest, the more impressed and blown away I am, I have to say. If you like video games or reading or watching television, you might have encountered some of his stories without even realizing it. My guest today, James Swallow, is a BAFTA-nominated scriptwriter and award-winning New York Times, Sunday Times, and Amazon number one best-selling author of over 50 books. His novels span a variety of genres, including espionage thrillers, fast-paced science fiction, and steampunk westerns. He's written fiction in the worlds of Star Trek, Doctor Who, 24, and others, and his script credits include Star Trek Voyager, Disney Infinity, Star Wars, and Battlestar Galactica. He's the only British author to have worked on a Star Trek show. In addition, James creates narratives and builds worlds for dozens of video games. So, James, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, listen, I really enjoyed meeting you uh, recently at Thriller Fest over in New York City, and I'm really uh, excited to pick your brain today about storytelling secrets that you that you use. I've rarely had a guest with such a wide variety of storytelling venues, so that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you to say that. I people say to me like, you know, wow, you write a lot of stuff. You're you're super prolific, and I and I think, am I? I I never really think of myself that way. I just think myself as as, as somebody who just likes to write. You know, it's it's all writing at the end of the day, right? You know, it's all kind of coming up with story and interesting characters. It's just the kind of venue that changes. Uh, and I think part of my kind of wanderlust, for want of a better term, you know, to try all these different media is I think it helps me be a better writer. It helps me develop new tool sets that I can kind of fold back to other forms of writing. So I'm constantly refreshing and constantly kind of challenging myself. I think that's fantastic. You know, so many authors seem to get in a rut, I will say, where they tend to do the same book over and over again with just changing the name of the love interest, maybe the name of the villain or serial killer and maybe the city that the story takes place in. And I love that you keep stretching yourself as a storyteller, not just trying to tell the same story over and over again, like one formula or template, plot formula, but uh, that you're stretching yourself. That's great. Mm -hmm. I always say like, you know, that, the two analogies I always use for writing is I say, on the one hand, it's like a muscle, right? You know, the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. You don't exercise your writing muscle, it gets flabby, your writing gets flabby. But the other analogy I often go for is, is I talk about it in terms of a toolbox, you know, is if, if your prose writing is your adjustable socket wrench, right? And your, your, your audio writing is, is, you know, your hammer or your electric screwdriver, right? You know, all these different tools, you can apply them in different ways. And the thing is, is that once you have a bigger toolbox, you can improve yourself as a writer because you bring those skills that you learn from another style of writing back into what other project you follow it with afterwards. So, you know, I could say that the skills I learned from writing for video games, which is about kind of propulsive narratives and about kind of, you know, pace and keeping people engaged in a, in a long ongoing story. I took the skills I learned from that and I folded that into, into my thriller writing. So I think all of these things help if you try and write in different ways, they all help you become a better writer because it keeps you engaged, it keeps you fresh, and it keeps you, as you say, challenged. Yeah, that's really, um, that's a good analogy. I like it with the toolbox and continually um, growing a bigger toolbox. Um, I found uh, for myself, I, I did a series of novels, 11 books in one series, and finally I was just like, I have to try other stuff 
or I'm going to just basically be same, using the same tools over and over again just to tell you know slightly different stories. And so people say, why did you stop writing that you know series? I liked it. And I'm like, I never really knew what to tell them. Now I can say I needed to try a different toolbox. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you can always go back to it, right? You know, you you could. That's the thing is, is that you can put down one type of project, go off and do something else, and then when you come back again, again, you know, you've grown your toolbox just that little bit more. Is you can you can constantly be folding the skills and the experiences you have from writing in different media back into other forms of media, because as I said, you know, it is all writing at the end of the day, but every one of those school, skills that you learn you know, will help you get better at your job. And I think, I think it's important not to kind of fall into that rut that you mentioned. You know, I, I find in my career, every kind of, you know, like five or 10 years, I kind of get a little bit itchy. I get a little bit antsy and I think I need to do something different. I need to challenge myself as a writer because if you don't do that, you, you start to get stale, you know, and your work, so. that, will, that will come out in your work. Yeah, definitely. I think so too. And as long as you brought up gaming, let me, ask you just a little bit about gaming now are you a gamer do you play uh quite a bit or or, or how do you do your research for the um, narrative writing that you do for the different games i play i play video games way more than i should do for a man of my age really <laughs> you know you know i stay up way too late playing video games Ten, what tends to happen is 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 my wife will say well i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna turn in for the night and i say oh, i'll play i'll play an hour or two of video games and then it's like 4 a.m before i realize what time of day it is <laughs> and, and yet, but she puts up with you so well she's asleep so she doesn't mind right so i'm not bothering her but um yeah i mean i've i've, I've always been interested in video games i mean i'm i'm a child of the games generation you know i kind of i came of age with video games so i grew up with them um one of the things that's been fascinating for me as somebody who's a player and somebody who's a writer is seeing how game narrative has grown and become something more substantial from the early days of just kind of like, you know, following dots around a screen where you don't really need much of a story to yeah. now when we have fully rendered narratives that can be, you know, hundreds of hours of story, the, the equivalent to, you know, three seasons of Game of Thrones is scripts in one video game, you know, 70 to 80 hours of narrative gameplay, wow. huge experiences, you know, kind of put in there. Somebody has to write all of that stuff. Uh, and as a, as a gamer, I, you know, early on in my career, I was seeing a lot of games, some games with really great stories, some games with not so great stories. And I, I kind of asked myself, well, you know, I'm a writer and these aren't very good stories. I wonder if I could do better, you know, and, and, and I kind of put out some feelers into that industry. Uh, and since I think it was 1999 was the, the first video game project I ever got kind of uh, engaged on as a, as a full-time writer. And, and since then, I've pretty much worked on one large video game project every year. Wow. And, done, and I just do that to kind of, again, you know, to kind of keep my hand in the industry and it's a very, it's a very exciting industry to be part of. I, I often equate it to the way that uh, television was when, when that kind of first came around. You know, you had people who were radio play writers, theatre writers, film writers, and then TV comes along, and people kind of go, "Well, what is this medium? You know, how does it work? It's, it's kind of like these things, but it's not. It's a different way of representing story. It's, it's not like a movie, but it is. It's not like a stage play, but it is." And Video games are the same thing. It's not one, any one of those mediums. It's a bit like TV. It's a bit like film. It's a bit like books. It's a bit like this, a bit like that. But it's not any one of those things. It's this interesting synthesis. And, you know, 
what a great time to be a writer, to be involved in the development of a brand new way of telling stories, to, you know, to reach people in a completely different way. And it's, it's just really fun to be part of that. And because it's changing and evolving so fast, because the technology is developing and, and the reach of games as a narrative medium is growing so fast, it's, uh, it's really exciting to kind of be you know, on the crest of that wave and seeing where you're going. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I, I probably grew up playing the same games. I don't know how old you are, but probably grew up, you know, playing the same games that you did. And I still remember yeah, it wasn't about a story. It was, you know, just about um, command. What was it? Chopper Command, I think I played when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and um, Centipede and all these games you know, back back in the day. But uh, but it was more of, you know, just. But now it's it's crazy and amazing. And what you've said is so true dozens or even maybe hundreds of hours of entertainment and storytelling. How do you even get started with um, with the story world that you're working with? In other words, are you already mainly working with established um, you know, brands or are you kind of creating it from scratch? It's a it's a mixture of both. I've, I've done both in my career. It's it's a funny situation to be in as a writer because most of the time, we as writers are used to being kind of the fountain from which all narrative springs, right? You know, uh -huh. if you were if you were writing a movie, there's no movie until you write your script, right? You know, there's there's no there's nothing there in that fictional world. But with a, with a video game, the sad truth is that people don't often come to a game for the story. What they come to a game for is the gameplay. You know, is for yeah. the is for the experience of being, you know, a superhero or a badass soldier or a racing driver or whatever that whatever the game happens to be about, you know, they come for that player fantasy. And then the narrative is the thing that wraps around that gameplay. So what often will happen is a games company will say, we, we want to do a, a racing game, right? We want to do a game like, let's say something like the Fast and the Furious, right? A street uh -huh. racing game. Um, and they might have, you know, some really great technology for rendering fast cars and cool, exciting sort of vehicular action. But they want to have a story as well. And it's only kind of, you know, three or four steps down the line of the production that they'll bring a writer in and say, we want this kind of game and we want this kind of story and we want you to create it for us. And it's only at that point do you get given the opportunity to start developing a narrative. But once you're there, you can build that entire world. You know, if, it, if it's a science fiction or a fantasy game, you know, you're building it from the ground up if you're creating, you know, a complete narrative backstory that has no basis in reality. And you're creating characters and factions and locations and environments. You know, it's um, I often say that game narrative is a kind of people say, how big is a game narrative? And I say, well, how long is a piece of string? You know, it depends how long, how big the game is. It can be something okay, small. Sure. A small experience that's a couple of hours long because it can be one of these kind of, you know, 70-hour mega epics. Or it can be these games that um, that don't have an end, that are kind of a constant playing experience that you can, you're going back to it. And these games exist uh, as an online playing space that's happening for years at a time. So you're constantly adding new small bits of story every couple of months, putting in a new narrative, a new adventure for, for to keep players engaged. That is, that is fascinating. And... Um... It, it, it's a little overwhelming to me to think of um, building all of those those worlds, you know, science fiction, fantasy, sometimes people call it speculative fiction or mythic and so on. You have to create what you just mentioned, the backstory, the characters, the motivations, you know, the direction of the narrative and all of those things. And um, I just think that that 
And it's impressive that you do that as well as write all of the other projects that you work on. Do you do you have any time management secrets <laughs> that you can share with the rest of us mortals out here? Yeah, it's, uh, don't do what I do, which is not have any time management at all. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, I mean, often with video game projects, you know, usually um, it's not just one writer, you know, it, it, because it couldn't be, because there's such massive projects, you couldn't just have one person working sure. on it. You know, so what you often find there, and, and that's also another fun thing about it, because it's a collaborative medium. Yeah, and if you like, if you like working with other talented, interesting people, and you, you know, you can work, if you're good in the room, as they say in Hollywood, you know, that's, uh, games are great for that, because you get to help be part of this team and create this world uh, on your own. Whereas, you know, when we're sitting around writing novels, you know what that's like, it's a very sedentary sort of, you know, lonely progression, where you're just there in the room by yourself, writing your story, thinking, is this any good? I hope people will like it, you know, and, it, and you don't really have much feedback until it kind of goes out to your editor or your readers. But in terms of like, you know, how I manage my time, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a kind of, I always say I'm, I'm a kind of, I come from a blue collar working class background. I mean, traditionally in the UK, uh, where I'm from, uh, writing is often seen as a very kind of middle class kind of thing. It's people who, you know, who've got a bit of disposable income or rich parents and they kind of do that because they don't have to do a real job. Right. I came from very much a kind of working class, you know, punch the clock at 9 a.m., get to work kind of mindset, you know, and my entire family are all people of that kind of thing, you know, engineers and, and uh, mechanics and nurses and that kind of thing. Those, that's, that's the kind of people that my family were. I was the first person in my family to do this kind of creative work. But the lessons I learned from them was very much to follow that kind of nine to five, you know, nine o'clock, backside in chair, hands on keyboard, start work. You know, so I don't... I don't wait for the muse to strike. You know, I don't sit kind of staring out of the window waiting for inspiration. You know, I go and I go out and hunt it down with a, you know, with a, with a, a spear in the neck, you know, and, I, <laughs> and you know, it's because I think that that's how, that's uh, the, the way that you have to, you have to work because otherwise, you know, you spend forever just kind of looking into the middle distance, waiting for a story to come. And I think you have to kind of get out there and chase it down. So in terms of time management, I think I just try to stick to that. You know, I do, the five day a week, nine to five, getting my backside in a chair an hour, hour off for lunch. Um, my wife comes home from work about five, five o'clock in the evening. And that's kind of like time to stop working. Yeah, that's the end of your working day. And I try to stick to that as strictly as I possibly can. I set myself a word count target, depending on the kind of project I'm working on. It may be longer or shorter. Uh, I get up in the morning. The first thing I do is I will edit the work that I did in the previous day. So that kind of primes the pump for me, kind of gets me up to speed. And when I finish doing that previous edit, then I get straight into writing whatever my target piece of work is for that day. And I go on throughout my process like that. So I'm kind of editing as I go. And then once I'm done with that, once I'm done with the project, I'll go back to the beginning, do a big, long edit through it. And that's pretty much my working structure. That's what works for me. I think it's great that you um, you take it so seriously and you don't sort of just sit around and say, oh, well, I hope an idea comes to me or whatever like that. Um, and I think sometimes when I speak with authors, they kind of have this, I don't even know what the approach is, sort of like sit there and then, like what you said, stare at the screen until an idea comes and you nibble around it or something. And and um, But I find for, for myself as well, I really need to say, okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to work right now. And some people will say, oh, you want to meet me for lunch? I was like, no, I got to work. And they're like, well, you're just writing a book. <laughs> I think, why did you put just in front of that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I always say that I think the truth about being a writer is, is that you are always writing. You're just not always writing it down. Mm, is that sometimes, you know, you know, you can be on the bus or you can be kind of sitting in the bath or something, you know, and on some level, your brain is tick, 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 you know, and ideas are kind of coming to you. You might find yourself, I don't know if you ever have this happen to you, so, you know, I always carry a notebook around with me now because sometimes I'll be sitting in a coffee shop having a cup of coffee and suddenly I'll be like, oh, there's a cool idea. There's a line of dialogue for a book. And I pull my notebook out and I jot it right down, you know, because my brain is always working. I know. I don't, the same for me I don't mean to disparage people who have a different process, by the way. You know, if your process is you want to stare out the window for days on end and then suddenly write your book in a kind of blind, mad panic, if that's what works for you, then you go for it. You know, I, I have a, a colleague who uh, regularly will write kind of half a novel and then throw it away and start again. And every time he tells me that, it just makes my heart shrink in my chest because I'm like, oh my God, all of that work that you just tossed away. How could you do that, you crazy man? But that's his process. Sure. And it's not, and it's not my place to critique it. If, I'm like, if, it seems horribly inefficient to me, but if that's what he needs to go through to create a piece of work that he's happy with, who am I to say he's wrong? That's a good point. You know, that's, I like that. It's, um, it is easy for, you know, for one person to sort of look at another's approach and, as long as we're talking and maybe look down on it, but there, we we shouldn't do that. And as long as we're talking about approach, let me ask you this question. You know, a lot of people are always interested in if the authors that they read outline their stories or write more organically. Which do you tend to do? Um, plot out the books and the projects beforehand or sort of unfold them as you write? So I'm, I'm pretty much a plotty guy. Um, I mean, especially with my thriller stuff, because I try and uh, have that kind of high speed, low drag action adventure approach. The, those kind of novels, you know, you need to have a strong narrative structure about, you know, where are you going to put the car chases and the dance numbers? You know, where is that all going to work? What's the, what's the framework of, of your story? And I think what I tend to do is I will build that framework very early on, that skeleton, that, you know, structure of the, the the outline of the book and then what i'll go is go back over it again and again and again multiple iterations hanging more material on it cutting and pasting chopping out what doesn't work until i find the the structure of it and the organic part for me is the development of the characters because i okay. have an idea of who these characters are and what i kind of do is it's like it's like there is like if the if the narrative is like a maze the characters of the mice that I drop in the maze and go, okay, find your way through that maze. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the character is the personality of the mouse finding its way through the maze. And, you know, and, they, and they may go in directions I don't expect, or they may kind of chew through the wall. And, and I was like, oh, wow, okay, that didn't work. Maybe I need to do this. And that's kind of the analogy that I see it is that, you know, the, the characters are these kind of like, you know, objects that you put into the narrative and then you see where they go. And if it works they go in the direction you want them to go. And if it doesn't work, you need to fix your narrative until it does work for them. I like how you mentioned that sometimes they go in directions that you don't necessarily um, pre can't predict that they would go in. I find that to be pretty true of the characters that I write. Sometimes they will act in ways or say things. And I think, where did that come from? Like, I have no idea, you know, where that came yeah. from. And very often I'm like, the more I think about it, that's probably better than what I had in mind when I sat down to write this scene. And so I I find that um, I'm often surprised in good ways. And, you know, it is always a little bit more work to go back through. But, um, but I feel like a lot of times that's where kind of the twists for me emerge. Yeah, I think that's kind of sometimes that's where the magic happens, right? You know, well, I mean, when you say that to people, 
uh, and you say, oh, my character did stuff I wasn't expecting, people look at you like you're crazy. you know do you you have voices in your head well kind of in a way yeah you know it's because you know you are generating these characters you are doing your best to make them feel like fully well-rounded people and there are times when you know i've written something and the characters just it it just feels wrong it feels like the character's wading through syrup and you think why doesn't this flow right and then if you step back you look at it and go you know that's just not right that's just not right for that character they would not say this in this situation they would not do this and the thing to do there is, I always say, if to write as you come up to that problem is, if you if you're in that situation, listen to the character because trust trust your instinct on that character. And if it doesn't feel right, take it in a different direction and see where it goes. Because writing is such a plastic medium, right? We we can stretch and change and, and mess around with stuff before we kind of hit that final print button and send it off to our to our publisher, right? And and it gets made into a book and it's kind of you know locked in place. But sure. until you get to that position. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got deadlines to hit and all that kind of stuff. But until you get to that place, you, it's plastic. You can keep moving it and changing it and adju- adjusting the shape of it until you find what is as close as you can get to the optimum form for your narrative. And, you know, it's never going to be 100% perfect. But I think we, you know, as writers, we're always striving to tell the best story we possibly can. And part of that is listening to your characters and letting them take you on their journey. That's um, that's a good, good, good way to put it is listening to your characters. And I did a book a couple of years ago called Story Trump's Structure, which was um, how to write unforgettable fiction by breaking the rules. And really, for me, the whole idea is whether you plot or don't plot or whatever, be um, responsive to the story and let the story, if it goes in a direction you hadn't anticipated, that's better Go with that instead of what you might have formulated beforehand months or maybe even years earlier. But that responsiveness is, I think, is really vital. Mm. I mean, it's funny that that kind of connects back a little bit to the, the idea of game design. It's that um, the best games, I've, I've always thought, are the ones that they, they have a linear narrative, but there is, there is a kind of degree of variation in it. So you can take different paths towards uh, you know, the end that you want to reach. And you have to put that stuff in there so players can feel like the world is responding to them and it's you know responding to the choices that they make. And I think you do the same thing with with character in a story. Is that the, the characters are your players? If you if you follow that kind of analogy, I guess you know. Yeah. So you have to give them agency within that narrative. You have to give them the opportunity to make choices that maybe don't seem like the smartest choice, but maybe that's the kind of the thing you need your character to do. And then that's when they come alive. That's when you have that that humanity to them, that, that realism where, you know, why is this character making a bad choice? Well, because that's who they are. Right. And not because, you know, it's the sort of thing like, you know, in a horror movie, like, Oh, let's go down into the basement where there's no lights on. You (laughs) You think, you think you idiots. Why are you going, what are you stupid? And if the character is genuinely stupid, then you go, okay, he's doing it because he's an idiot. Right. Yeah. But when you see a character, you see a character who is not, who's been established as not being stupid, doing a stupid thing. That's the thing that so grinds my gears, you know, Oh, you've handed that character the idiot ball because you want them to, to do this particular thing in a story and you haven't actually thought about an organic way to do it. And that's the thing is, is how do you get your characters to the places you want them to go, or at least as near as damn it, and do it in a way that doesn't feel forced. And that's listening to characters, finding, finding what their path is, finding their through line through the story and trying to stay true to it. Yeah, I was thinking of um, 
this idea of so let's say that I'm reading a story or I'm watching a film or something and a character does something inscrutable just like you said like why is it doing why is this character doing this and if the if the consumer let's say the the reader let's say um, is thinking no 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 don't go into the basement then I think that they trust the um, the author. But if they're thinking, oh, that's stupid, he would never go into the basement, then they don't trust the author. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, who are they getting angry at? If they get angry at the author and they're like, no, that's that's a dumb idea, that's one thing. Or if they get angry at the character, like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. I think that, that building up that trust, once readers have that, or viewers or whatever medium you're working in, once they have that, then you can play with those characters who might not make the best choices all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if a character makes a bad choice and your audience is going, no, don't go in there, that's because <laughs> they care about that character, right? And exactly. it's not because they're not, they're not saying, don't go in there, you idiot, they're, because you're, so, you're too stupid to realize, don't you realize there's a serial killer down there in the basement? Yeah. They're, not saying, they're, they're saying, no, don't go downstairs because I don't want you to die because I like you as a character. Yeah. And that's great. You know, if, if your audience cares about your character... And they're begging you not to have this horrible thing happen to them. That's great. You've got their empathy, and you've you've won half the battle. But like you say, yeah, you know, if um, if a character makes a decision, and you just think this character has been presented as being someone who's super intelligent, let's say, and then they do something really dumb, yeah, you think a person like that wouldn't do that unless there was a really good reason for it. And if the if the really good reason isn't there in the narrative, you feel like you're being shortchanged. And and that's always unfair. That's the thing that always throws me right out of, of movies I'm watching. You know, there's that... I always think there's kind of like this soap bubble around you as a viewer or a reader or a gamer even, you know. Mm. Uh, and that soap bubble is the wall, is the world, right? And what you want in a great story is you want to be drawn into that world and you want to be carried along by that narrative and enjoy it, you know, be a passenger in that world and enjoy that story. But that bubble will pop if something happens that just doesn't feel right. And once it pops, it's really hard to get that back because once you lose that trust with your audience, it's very, very difficult, especially if, you know, you're in the middle of a fast-moving story. How do you recover that energy? And, you, you know, you've soured, you've soured the, uh, the audience's interest in your story. So it's very important to me, I think, to try and make things feel realistic, to make things have, even in an unrealistic world, in unrealistic scenarios, to at least make the choices of the characters feel true. When um when you were saying that, I was thinking about this whole idea of believability and how vital it is. And sometimes people will say um, that uh, that we have the um, oh, when you read a book, um, that you have to set believability aside or something like that. And and um, I'm trying to think of the phrase that people have used for that. Anyway. But to set believability aside, and and I think that believability is one of the most important, you know, aspects. And once uh, of that bubble, and once that believability is popular, as you mentioned, it is really hard to um, to gather it up again. What are some of the um, what are some of the techniques that you use to keep that believability bubble or whatever it is around the story? Do you have any specific techniques that you're like, yeah, this is really what I like to try and do when I'm writing to keep that honesty to the story? 
Well, with the um, certainly with my with my Mark Dane thriller stuff, um, what I'm writing about there is very much a kind of heightened action adventure reality. So you know, it's I always say if you wanted a movie analogy, I'd say if you like the Jason Bourne movies or the Mission Impossible movies, that's kind of the wheelhouse I'm writing in. So it is this heightened reality where you know things are exploding and gunfire is happening and people are barely getting through stuff by the skin of their teeth and if you step back and look at it realistically, go, well, that guy wouldn't last five minutes in the real world. That would never happen. <laughs> right? But that's not why we come to these stories, because we don't right. want to come to them for gritty realism. We want to come to them for, for action and adventure. We want something that gets our blood pumping, you know, that, that yeah. thrills you, because that's the point of a thriller, right? And I always think that the kind of deal I try and make with the audience is, is that the if the thrills and spills are a bit unrealistic, I try to make everything else around that as realistic as I can make it. So... Ooh. If I'm writing about real world locations or technology or hardware or people, you know, if I'm writing about stuff that exists in the real world, I try and make that as, as true as I possibly can make it. So if I write a car chase, I will, I will plot that car chase out on real streets and, and you can get in the car and you could drive the route that I'm writing. So if you lived in that town and I wrote a car chase in your town, you would say, yep, there is a crosswalk there. That's where the bus turns. You know, here's where the building is on the corner that the car crashed into. And I try to make it feel as true as possible. When I'm talking about uh, technology and hardware and organizations that exist in the real world, I do as much research as I possibly can. So all that stuff feels authentic. And that way, what I'm saying is if you, you know, if you let me get away with a few unrealistic action moments i promise you i'll pay off the authenticity in all the other places i like it that's great a lot of people don't take that much care to get the details correct and um i love that you actually go to that location and make sure that that chasing could actually work in uh you know on those streets and everything that's great i love that well you know it's it's the idea of the i can't remember if it was it's about the idea of the telling detail have to put in absolutely everything that you might see on a location scale or every piece of information you come across but there is the telling detail that feels true and authentic and if you if you have that it's like if you convince the reader that i know enough about this is they'll go with you on that story you know uh, i'll give i mean i'll give you an example there's um uh, a guy who's an ex-british special forces guy a sas guy a guy called chris ryan he was one of the Bravo Two Zero guys, and he's got his name on a whole bunch of these these sort of like you know, badass guys kicking in doors style novels. And I went to a presentation that he did, and he was talking about being in the SAS and about the equipment that they use. And he was talking about deck cord. Do you know what that is? Mm. Something and, with bombs, but I don't know exactly. Yeah, well, it's it's basically it's kind of like an explosive cord that you use to kind of you could put it in a circle on a wall and like kind of blow a hole in the wall without oh. having to use like a big explosive device. And he was talking about what deck cord is and what it looks like, uh, and he said, "Oh, it looks like washing line, but it smells like marzipan." Huh. And and immediately I thought, see, that's the telling detail right there. That that description only somebody who had handled that material would know exactly that that kind of sensory granular detail and i, I think it. that's the kind of thing that i often try and strive for is what's the what's the granular real detail that feels true that feels authentic and i think if you can find those you can ground your story in reality even if as i said you know it's a fantastical narrative even if it's kind of like a sci-fi story or it's a fantasy story if you have that telling detail if you have that granular truth you put your characters in that scenario and hopefully, you know, it will all come together and feel real. Now, um, when, when I write, sometimes I like to go to the location and get some of those details, as you mentioned, 
but I've never thought of it in terms of a telling detail or a telling reality. And um, I think that's fantastic. I think that that's going to really help me, even as I look at the scenes I'm writing and working on, to say, what would this character with this kind of background notice in, you know, about this debt cord or whatever it is? I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, and you know, that's that, that, I think that's another thing. Is obviously, you know, you can't always go to every place you want to go to, especially if you're making something up. You know, I couldn't get travel insurance to go to Somalia when I was writing about Mogadishu in in, in my novel Exile. Yeah. Um, but what I did is the next best thing is I talked to people who'd been there. I read books about it. I, I I tried to get as close as I could possibly get without actually literally physically walking the streets myself because I'm looking for that telling detail. Because I'm looking for that sense of authenticity, for that truth, and I think that. When you do that, especially if you can actually go to a location, there is a confidence that, that you get as a writer that comes through your writing in a very kind of subconscious sense. I think that, you know, you, because you've been, because you've stood in that building and you're writing yeah. about that particular, let's say, like, right, you and I were in New York just recently, we're Grand Central Station, right? I stood in the middle of Grand Central Station, I was looking around, and I thought, next time I come to write about this location, because I've been here, sure. there, will be, there will be an assurance in my writing that will hopefully come across that will translate because I've been in that building and I've got a true sense of how it sounds, how it feels, what it's like to be there. And if you can translate that to your reader, I think they will pick up on it and they'll trust you that that's truth in that narrative. Now you mentioned your, uh, your book exile. And I know that that just recently released here in the U S I know it's been out in the UK for a bit. Tell us a little bit more about this story, because this is one that people listening here in North America can go pick up and grab a copy of right now. Sure thing. Well, uh, Exile is the second book in my Mark Dane action thriller series. The the first one was Nomad that came out last year. Um, uh, It's basically about, I guess, the, the, the way I would encapsulate it is it's the story of a character who used to be the guy in the van. And you know we've seen this in every kind of action thriller trope. You know, <laughs> there's always there's always the guy who's the door kicker and the trigger puller, right? You know, who's kicking in the doors and doing a thing. And then we'll cut away, and there's the guy in the van on the computer going, "Okay, there's five guys in there. Let me just hack that console for you. Wait a second, I'll do I'll do this, right?" Um, and back when I was first trying to, you know, come up with an idea for a thriller novel that I wanted to write, I kept coming back to this idea of the guy in the van, and I thought, well, what if the guy in the van had to do the other guy's job? If the guy in the van got kicked out of his comfort zone and he had to be the one who's getting shot at and running around and, and doing the kind of hero stuff. And immediately that was kind of the, the appeal of the story to me. So that's the story of the main character, Mark Dane. In the first book, um, he's, his team are all wiped out and he's framed for, for this terrible atrocity. He has to go on the run to figure out you know, who's framed him and what's really going on. In the second novel, In Exile, it's a year later, and he's trying to find a, a path for himself, and he doesn't really know what to do with himself. He's working for the ONS, which is the Office of Nuclear Security, which is a real-life organization, part of the United Nations, who monitor the trafficking of radioactive material. So not just kind of, you know, loose nuclear devices that have slipped out of the, the Soviet Union, but also kind of like, you know, nuclear waste, medical nuclear waste, that kind of thing. They're just basically keeping an eye on all of this stuff to make sure bad people don't get their hands on it. And in the course of the story... Um, Mark finds out about what appears to be uh, a suitcase nuclear device, but nobody seriously takes this thing, you know, seriously because it's like, well, this is a, you know, isn't this kind of a myth? These things don't really exist. They don't really work. But he's convinced that this is a real threat. And when he realizes that nobody else is going to like, you know, put any credence to this, he goes out on his own to try and hunt down the bad guys who have this device. 
And at the same time, the device is falling into the hands of this Somalian pirate warlord who basically finds himself with the ability to become an independent nuclear power hmm. and threaten and threaten the um, threaten the forces of the of the rest of the world, the the larger nations. And it's a story about this guy who, you know, this pirate king, this this kind of you know, lawless, ruthless guy, is suddenly given this terrible, devastating weapon of mass destruction. And his decisions about what he's going to do about it. And our hero is racing to try and stop him before the, the weapon goes off. I love it. It sounds just right up my alley. Um, I was recently reading a book called The Secrets of Action Screenwriting by oh, William Bar- I love that book. Oh, that's a, that's a great book. Yes, absolutely. I wonder if you're the one who told this to me when we were at Thriller Fest. Someone had recommended this book and I was like, I'm going to check it out. So I started reading it. And um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's. Um, there are a lot of books on screenwriting and stuff out there, but this one is very practical. And one of the things that he mentioned in there in action writing is that it's the villain who has the plan, and it's the hero who has to stop it. And just when you were telling me that story, I was thinking about that. Okay, I kind of get it. You know, the hero has to stop this plan. And so the key, a lot of times in an action uh, story, is figuring out what is the villain's plan. Mm-hmm. And... I think that sometimes I don't really think of it in those terms. Like I always think of what's the character trying to do and what's he desire and stuff like this, which is all helpful. But, but just stepping backward once and saying, okay, what is the plan and how is he going to try to stop it and fail and try and fail and try and fail and finally somehow at great cost, stop this plan. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's very true because certainly, action thriller stories you know you 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 are you're often told you know well, what's the character's motivation what do they want what are they what are they afraid of what are they losing all yep. of that stuff still operates you know none of yeah. it, it it's not like you ignore any of that in an action story but what you do have is you have this kind of crucial element like um you know goldfinger is a really good example right the you know you've got goldfinger's going to set off a nuke inside um fort knox and he's going to screw up the American economy, right? That's the villain's plan. You, and so, what's James Bond's job in this story? Is he's like he's got his own sort of things that he's doing, his own motivations as a person. But his job is stop Goldfinger from doing this terrible thing. Find out what he's doing. Stop it from happening. Yeah. Similarly, if you go back to uh, another one of my favorite action touchstone movies, Die Hard, right? Here's sure. this is this is a story about the villain's plan, right? The villains have this plan to take over this building, to rob it, and get away scot free, and and uh, you know live the life of Riley on a beach somewhere, and John. McLean, our hero, just wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. He has to stop them. And he's got his own motivations because he's not there to stop their plan. That's not why he went to that building on that day. He's there to try and reunite with and with his strange wife. And he's got yeah. so he's got a whole character arc that he's trying to get through. And these bad guys get in the way. Uh, and then action happens, you know, and sparks start to fly. And I think that idea, that Martel's idea there of the of the hero reacting to the villain's plan, I think is is something that is in the DNA of every good action story. It's nice to step back sometimes and have someone point out, you know, uh, the obvious to, <laughs> to you. So like when, when you start looking at action movies and action novels and so on, you're like, well, yeah, how come I didn't notice that before? But uh, it's... it's um, so when I was thinking of... Um, just when I went through and and thought of what questions to ask you, one that I came up with was you've written both for other people's worlds like Star Trek and so on. And also you've created your own worlds. How do you step into like, let's say Star Trek. 
I mean, there are so many different storylines that have developed from the different shows and book series and so on. Um, and uh, how how do you step into that world without having someone who's a, an expert on warp drives say, wait a minute, it's really four meters instead of three meters until you get to you know the other side of the drive or something like that? Well, obviously, the answer is, is that I am an expert on warp drive. It's, it's, <laughs> You, you need to, yeah, I mean, no, I'm not really. I mean, there, there, are, there are people out there who are true. way more expert than I am. I think when you're going to, when you're writing in a world that's not your own, where, uh, you know, whether you want to call it a franchise, intellectual property, oh, yeah, universe, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it, you have to have some love for it. Most importantly, I think, you know, you have to come, it has to be something that you've enjoyed, something that you care about, something that you think is fun, because that doesn't, because if you don't, if you're just sort of doing it as hack work, that translates immediately because the people who will read these stories are people who are fans who do love that franchise and they will sniff you out a mile off if you don't feel the same way. So I think first and foremost, you need to care about it. Yeah. I mean, Star Trek is a show that I grew up watching as a kid that gave me so much enjoyment and still does, you know, and it's a, it's a fun part of my kind of viewing landscape. So for me, as someone saying to me, you know, do you want to write a Star Trek story? That's like, great. I, I get an opportunity to kind of contribute a little piece to this great patchwork quilt that is all the hundreds and hundreds of Star Trek stories that have ever been told, not just TVs and movies, but there's games, comic books, novels, oh, you know, sure. there's, there's there's tons and tons of stuff out there. And I'm and I'm being offered the opportunity to kind of add a little bit to that, which is which is really great. It's it's like someone hands you a box of toys and they're very cool toys. And they say, you can play with this box of toys. But the thing is, is, you can't break them and you can't get sticky fingerprints all over them. You have to hand them back at the end of the day. So you can tell some great stories, but you can't fundamentally change the sense of the characters. You can't, you know, suddenly reveal something that nobody had ever seen before about that character because, you know, you're going to completely change, especially if it's part of like an ongoing narrative. You're going to completely change that. And you don't own those characters. You know, you're not the creator of those characters. You're beholden to somebody else. But that said... What you can do is certainly like in prose, like if I'm writing a Star Trek novel, there's stuff I can do in prose that they could never do on the TV shows. You can never get that that kind of internal viewpoint, that internal monologue that you can have. Sure. You can get in a book, you can get inside Captain Kirk's head and you can say, well, this is what he was thinking about when he was doing that. And you can get uh, an insight into a character in prose that you will never get in television. And you can also, you know, you, you don't have to worry about bringing back characters from previous stories you don't have to worry about a special effects budget you know you can go to places and do things that uh maybe would be beyond the scope of the you know the source material uh and that's and that's great fun and also of course you get a built-in audience so the moment you write that story people who maybe would not have come to you if you wrote just like say a regular sci-fi story would come to you because you wrote a star trek story because they like star trek so immediately your name and your writing style gets exposed to an audience who perhaps might have passed you by otherwise. But all of these great. things, yeah. and while all these things, I'm representing all of these things as positives, they can also be negatives as well, because you immediately have a much greater weight of expectation on you, because people know exactly who these characters are and exactly how this fictional world works. Yeah. And, if you, and if you, like you said, if you don't get it right, people will not be shy in telling you about it, that you got it wrong. People know what they want to see, and and if you don't, if you don't tell the story right, if you don't get the tone and the voice of the characters correct, it's like a bum note in a song. People will hear it a mile off, and they'll say, you know, you're you're just not doing the job very well. 
and that pressure to to do those stories well to especially if it's something that you know you care about that you want to do a good job on the pressure is quite high to 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 do that but you also get like i said you know you get the toolbox full of stuff but then if you're writing something that's original you know you have a tabula rasa you know you don't have any of those expectations you don't have a licensor or a production company looking over your shoulder going now you have to change that because we don't want to do that we want to do this thing you know if you're writing your own stories you can go wherever you want but then you don't have that immediate buy-in from people you know you don't have that kind of step up that you might get from working in a franchise so it's it's kind of it's you know it's apples and oranges there are there are positives and negatives on on both sides of the equation I, I really loved how you were talking about playing with the set of toys and uh, don't leave your fingerprints on or, you know, don't break any of these toys. Um, and uh, I think maybe it was last year when I heard that in the Avengers story world or whatever, the Marvel universe, they were going to make Captain America um, a spy for Hydra that all these years he'd really been a spy. And now he's finally revealed as, as a traitor. And I was like, what? That feels like you just broke the toy to me. Yeah. Like, you know, that that was a toy that has been around for decades. And now here you are, you're saying, oh, by the way, he's a double agent or whatever it is. That really struck me in the wrong way. But of course, they, you know, they, they did that and then they undid it all, you know, because comic books are great for that, is that they're constantly constantly reinventing themselves and changing stuff. So, you you know, the the thing about comics is, you could do that in a comic book because, you know, in a couple of months time, they'll go, actually, that's not what happened. And we'll change everything. <laughs> yeah, that's actually yeah, absolutely it's, it's, true. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, all you have to ask is, I mean, I, it's, it's, I mean I'm, a, I'm a, uh, somebody who read comic books as a kid and I still do occasionally now. Um, seeing the Marvel superhero movies and seeing like main characters die and people I know who seen the films but never read the comics, they're like, oh, my God, they killed off this main character. That's uh -huh. unbelievable. And I'm like, yeah, they do it in the comic books all the time. Just, you know, give it, give it a couple of months and he'll be back, you know, with, with a different outfit. It'll be fine, you know, because it's because that's the way they do those things. That's because yeah. it's that speaks to that kind of that style of medium is that, you know, that's that's part of the narrative structure. That's part of the fun of it, I guess. I think so. I think so. And that's a good point. Um, well, before we close up, I know that you also had a UK uh, book release recently. And for anyone who might be listening across the pond it was this book shadow is that the one that just recently came out that's right yeah so that's the that's the fourth book in my mark dane series so um and i'm just currently working on, on the fifth one right now um that one is uh basically my lead characters uh mark dane and his partner lucy keys who's a ex uh, u.s army sniper they're hunting uh, a bio researcher who's been kidnapped by a, a far-right terrorist group uh, and the, and they're on their way to these bad guys are basically going to start a false flag biological attack in Europe. Um, and our heroes are racing across the world to try and hunt them down and capture them before they let off a, a, a bioweapon in, in the center of the of a European city. Sounds great. Uh, some people will refer to these ideas that you're you're talking about as like high concept. And I, I never really quite understood what high concept is, but um but I think it's when you can encapsulate the stakes are very high and you can encapsulate the story in a short amount of time, uh, sort of as you did. Um, do you consider your books like high concept or is that just not a, even a term that you ever deal with? That's always a, that's kind of a Hollywood phrase, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah, you, I, know, I, so, I yeah. you know, the idea of the sort of the elevator pitch thing, you know, yeah. that 
where you can encapsulate in in you know it's jaws meets the graduate or it's kind of like it's <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's 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 star wars in the 1500s it's like well okay uh, it, you know I, I i think that kind of stuff comes from my experience of working in the film and television is that you have to kind of sure. encapsulate it you have to learn to do that thing. i mean i hate writing synopses because i feel like i'm taking a 150,000 word book and i have to squeeze it down to like a paragraph's worth of out, of, of ideas for people I know, always, I don't know how to do it's it. It's always yeah. difficult to do. But yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the idea of the high concept, I think if you, if you have an idea for your story and you can't boil it down to one paragraph, maybe you need to think about your story. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, even if those essential beats are, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, uh, I remember my dad always used to say to me, the story of Jaws is a Western. And I said, how do you make that? And he said, because it's a stranger coming. It's a bad man comes to town. Oh, Okay. And it's like, you know, he's not wrong, right? You know, it's, yeah. that, that, that's the plot of Jaws, right? The bad man comes to town, except it's a shark, not a man. Yeah. So, you know, and, and when you think of everything that goes on in Jaws, that's how you, but you're still encapsulating the central truth of what that narrative is about. Yeah. And then you finally have the showdown, you know, at the very end between the, yeah. uh, <laughs> between the sheriff actually and the bad yeah, See, it, it, the more you think about it, it actually kind of like the analogy actually really works because it is the sheriff fighting the bad guy. Yeah, sure Smile, is. you son of a bitch. It's <laughs> a great movie. Well, um, James, I've really enjoyed uh, picking your brain a little bit here, and I appreciate you being with us. Um, I love some of the stuff that you really mentioned about, you know, the toolbox and also playing with the toys and not breaking them and just believability, responding, listening to the characters taking the craft seriously, all of that stuff is fantastic. And I know our listeners are going to really benefit from, from uh, your experience and your insights. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I mean, it's been great to, to chat to you. You know, I love coming on podcasts and talking to people about writing, especially to other writers. It's because it doesn't feel like work. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just us sitting there going, wow, our job's great, isn't it? You know, we get to make stuff up for a living, you know, and, and that's always fun. Now, where can people, we mentioned a couple of your books, those are available, Exile in the U.S. and Shadow I Know in the U.K. right now. And of course, you have many other books. Those are just the recent ones. Is there a place where people can connect online or find out more about your books um, and uh, kind of look up some of these different series that you've written? Sure thing. Well, uh, the, if you're looking for my books in the U.S., they're, they're published by Forge. And in the U.K. and Europe, they're, they're published by um, Bonnie Zafra. If you want to get hold of me, I'm, I, t- I tend to have uh, my social media appearances is on Twitter. So if you go to at JM Swallow, you can find me there. I'm always posting on there, trying to be witty and clever and posting up pictures of stuff. And, and just generally kind of that's where I chat. If you want to find out more about my writing, come along to my website, which is jswallow.com. Uh, that pretty much encapsulates everything that I've done. I've got like every, uh, there's a piece on there about like every project I've ever worked on. I try to to cover all of it in some way. Uh, my marked name books are up there. There's also uh, some free ebook stuff to download, including an original Mark Dane novelette called Rough Air, which you can download. So if you're interested in my uh, my characters and you maybe haven't read the books yet, feel free to come down, download that, and see if it's uh, the sort of thing that's in your wheelhouse. And if you like that, uh, try out the books. Fantastic. All right. And um, of course, I'm Stephen James, and you can check out my books at stephenjames.net. And uh, my newest synapse is available for pre-order now. For more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, you can click to thestoryblender.com. And friends, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.